Hello and welcome to Deprogram with Carrie Smith. This is a brand new channel. So if you arrived here via the algorithm, make sure you hit like and subscribe if you like the video. I am very excited for my guest today. I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Michael Rechtenwald. He is a former NYU professor and author, and this will be my first time getting to speak with him. Hello, Michael. How are you? Hi, Carrie. How are you? Good. I'm good. I'm I'm really happy this worked out. I know you're incredibly busy, and uh, I just appreciate you donating your time and your insights today. So, no worries, my pleasure. So I, you had on the show deprogrammed. A lot of times, we sort of talk about my old ideology, which is I most often call social justice ideology, but I think it's most colloquially known as woke ideology, and. A lot of people are familiar with the cancel culture mobs that are happening as a result of this belief system becoming dominant culturally. You went through something of your own cancellation. Would you mind telling people a little bit about that? We don't have to spend too much time on it. Yeah, it's pretty well known. I've written about it in springtime for Snowflakes. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, um, I was a leftist uh, Marxist professor, as a matter of fact, at NYU. and. Uh, you know, uh, in, uh, I started to have some fallout with uh, the social justice ideology, really, as you put it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I started a Twitter account. It was called the Anti-PCNYU Prof. And I started tweeting uh, about the social justice lunacy on campuses. And uh, <clears throat> sooner or later... Um, a NYU reporter, student newspaper reporter, contacted me and said, you know, if you're really an NYU professor, I really love to talk to you because what you're saying is not typical of NYU professors. Especially and, a Marxist professor. Yeah, well, they didn't know that, but they found out. And I said, yeah, I'll do the interview. And I, I didn't, this, uh, this account had been anonymous, this Twitter account, but I went on the record as myself uh, answered the questions and uh, really laid it on in terms of what I thought was going on with social justice, as it was called. Mm -hmm. And now, as you said, called wokeness. And uh, yeah, 48 hours later, I was in the dean's office with the head of human resources being pushed into a leave of absence. Uh, little did I know while I was in that meeting, the this committee called the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Group had published an, a denunciation of me in the same newspaper uh, and called me everything from, well, they said that I was uh, guilty for the structure and content of my thinking. Guilty for the structure and content of my thinking. Wow. You're, you were guilty of actual thought crime. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it, it all just, uh, it all just, circled the drain and went down the drain after that, as far as my time at NYU. Um, I went on the leave because I took the leave because I thought I needed to take the leave because they were strong arming me into it. And I was up for promotion to full professor and I didn't want to jeopardize that. So I took their le uh, their advice and took this lead leave. When I came back, I got all these, uh, I went on, this, you know, with the semester, and then the last day of the, the semester that I was back, I got this huge barrage of emails started coming out on the NYU listserv, you know, to all the faculty and uh, sta staff and administrators, and uh, they were calling me every name in the book, racist, sexist, Nazi, homophobe, uh, white, short pants, white devil, uh, and... <laughs> I have to look that one up still. Uh, <laughs> short. Did you say short pants, white devil? Yeah, short pants, white devil. I don't even know what the hell that means still to this day. This is years ago, but I, I don't remember. And uh, so, you know, I, I got a, I got attorneys and I sued these people and the university for this libel that they were spreading all over the place. And uh, they got an, they, had, they hired an army of attorneys. And so the case was ju just was dismissed, but, uh, I, I, I wasn't done. And, uh, so I, I committed a terrible faux pas. I, I invited my Milo Yiannopoulos to speak in my classroom. Oh my, I didn't know that part of it. 
Wow. On Halloween. Yeah. On Halloween. And he was going to speak about, I said, why don't you speak about the politics of Halloween? Because Halloween costume shaming and canceling was a big part of what was going on. And so he agreed to do it. He had written the talk. It was really well done. I made sure there wasn't anything scandalous in there. And it was very scholarly, actually. Mm-hmm. And uh, But uh, I got all these, when this news of this got out that this was happening, uh, got in the New York Post, as a matter of fact. By the way, I had been all, all over the new media by this time. Uh, when it got in the New York Post, I started getting emails from all these uh, student groups and saying that I was uh, jeopardizing their safety and all this nonsense. Uh, and uh, NYU couldn't shut down the uh, class because I, this was now a classroom setting. So here you have academic freedom as opposed to like an extracurricular event. Mm-hmm. So they couldn't do anything, but the the mayor of New York, de Blasio, shut down the classroom. Wow. Yeah. The mayor got involved. The mayor called NYU, supposedly, or they called him and said, whatever. I don't know how it went down, but the story is that de Blasio himself canceled the class. So That's amazing. That, yeah, that was that. And uh, But Milo did the, cla- did the talk from a undisclosed location and streamed it on the internet uh it was hilarious uh he totally changed it because he was now not restricted by anything uh about the classroom anyway then i bet i bet he got more views because of it too i got a lot more views and then nyu came back as i suspected after this they would come back to the table to negotiate a settlement with me which they did well, that's good. And so then after you left NYU, you started, you, you stopped talking about all this stuff. No kidding. Then, yeah. <laughs> yeah, then <I'm> hiding. <laughs> um, would you say though, that you became more vocal about? Oh yeah. Person? In the interim, my book springtime for snowflakes uh, came out uh, before I left NYU. It came out. And uh, then uh, I just kept writing on all these things. Uh, I wrote this book, Google Archipelago, which Mm -hmm. was about basically the same ideology in big tech or big digital, as I called it in the book. And then Mm -hmm. I wrote Beyond Woke, which is a series of essays that take this thing from every angle you can imagine. And then uh, my last book was Thought Criminal, a novel, I read Thought Criminal. Yes, of course, it has nothing to do with my own experience. (laughs) Yeah, it's great. I love, well, I mean, the past few years, especially, I've been reading a lot more, um, you know, futuristic dystopian novels. And that book, you included a lot of stuff about uh, a a virus. Yeah. And the government, and it's uh, anyone that's interested should check it out. It's really very applicable to the times we find ourselves in. Yeah, the virus was in the in the book. The virus, I will give this away. It's not a biological bi- virus, as it turns out. It's uh, it's actually technological. It's nanobots. Mm-hmm. Uh, they create neural links, if you will, to this database called Collective Mind. And the story is about how this one hero or the protagonist, for better to be more accurate, uh, and a bunch of others, a, a network of thought deviationists, as they're called, try to stay disconnected from collective mind and finally overthrow it. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to talk to you in particular about one of the articles that you wrote recently, um, which was uh, woke, the woke hegemony. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah. And so you're one of the first people that I saw talking about the global reset. About the Great world reset, e- yeah. Sorry, the Great Reset, um, the World Economic Forum and yeah. ESG scores and this phenomenon of, of woke capitalism, which I mm-hmm. think a lot of people like myself struggle to wrap our heads around. Yeah. You know, why, why are corporations, maybe we could just start there. Why are corporations embracing woke ideology in your yeah, opinion? 
Yeah, that was something that perplexed me. And so I started to investigate it. Mm-hmm. Um, it perplexed me because why would they be embracing leftism? Because after all, the history of corporations and the left is one of antagonism going back to the 60s and even before. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, if you look at um, socialism, what is it? It's about bringing down capitalism. So the left and, so, and corporations have not been uh, bedfellows, friendly bedfellows. So I, I was really like, what's going on here? Why are these corporations effectively spouting semi-socialist ideology? Uh, I couldn't figure it out. So there's a number of theories that are floated about this. And I I studied them all and I just totally, I don't think any of them, I didn't find any of them adequate to explain it. One is uh, the one floated by the guy that first introduced the term woke capital. Woke capital, woke capitalism was Ross Dutat of the New York Times. And he said, basically, it's a way of placating uh, consumers uh, instead of giving them real economic uh, benefits like higher wages or better benefits or whatever. It's just an assuage. It's kind of a rhetorical placebo. And that sounded okay, but it didn't sound totally explanatory to me. And then there's another one that the you know, it's a way of giving people uh, representation in the public sphere or the public square where they don't feel they have any in the political sphere or they, they don't feel they feel disenfranchised. So, you know, that that was another one. And then there's others like they're just, you know, corporations are just trying to adv- uh, avoid cancellation themselves. And uh, they are uh, trying to placate these leftists to keep from getting canceled. And all of those aren't wrong, but they don't seem sufficient in my opinion. And I went and and really, and I started this with Google archipelago, which is about the leftism of big digital and why the hell they are leftist, you know? And I started to believe, and I started to think, and I theorized that they actually, that this wokeness actually benefits them, uh, economically, uh, and, uh, otherwise it's, it's just behooves them to use wokeness, and I can tell you why, if you want to talk about that, it, it goes it goes into the Great Reset, and uh, it's yeah, yeah. I would I would like to talk about that. You used a word in your essay. You said that it's like a parapolitical apparatus that's being formed. Well, that was one of the theories. That's the theory by um, this business insider, uh, Josh Barrow. He said that uh, wokeness serves as a parapolitical representation. For, oh, okay. For consumers, but it's not okay. the it's not the explanation I adopt. Uh, those are so in that essay I'm writing. Well, I, I could give a little bit of background about how I write, and I taught this way too. Is I teach students to first you go down this faulty path, in which you discuss the possible alternatives to your thesis, and then you take a turn back to the main path, and you. Uh, arrive at your own actual thesis. So that's what I did there. And so my actual thesis is this, that these corporations are actually uh, monopolists at base, and they're attempting to establish monopolies. And wokeness is the means of establishing by which they are attempting to establish monopolization over the economy. It's a demarcation device. It's a kind of way of of uh, de- demarcating the woke from the non- non-woke and then driving all production and le- you know, legitimacy, first of all, and then viability and, and then capital investments to the woke and driving it away from the unwoke. So it's a means of cancellation, just as it works in on individuals. It's a means mm-hmm. by which to cancel corporations just as it cancels individuals uh and that is part of a monopoly scheme it's a way of monopolizing the economy by virtue of getting rid of competitors so uh that's that was that's my argument and i've made it in different ways in a number of different pieces uh it's what i said about the big digital why they're woke so for example for anybody who's not familiar you're you're bringing to mind for me. We'll just just look at big digital. 
that is what's happened to competitors. So mm -hmm. you've, you've had these competitors to Twitter and to Facebook like Gab, mm -hmm. uh, like, like Parler, um, and, and some of the early ones like Gab, they've faced this, this, uh, cancellation every step of the way, you know, right. they're, not, they're not allowed to have their app in the, in the app store. Yeah. You can't get it on Google play. You can't get it on the, on the iPhone. Um, they have to host their own, they have their own servers. They have to host their own website. Mm -hmm. Everything that is provided for places like Twitter and Facebook is denied to them. They have to build everything from scratch. Mm -hmm. Indeed. So they're, they're a great example so, and then I started getting into this whole ESG thing, which is the Environmental, Social, and Governance Index on the stock markets. And so, so then I started realizing this global capitalism is not merely like rhetoric. It's not simply advertising. It's not even just local cancellations or individual cancellations. It is a systematic way of destroying com competition because the ESG is a way of directing capital to the environmentally, socially, and governance compliant corporations and away from others. And it's being implemented from the very top, not just the World Economic Forum, which is really pushing the agenda, but the major asset managers and banks are all abiding by this ESG and their, their investments in corporations and companies and businesses are dependent upon the ESG. So it's a way of driving away capital from these ESG, comp ESG unworthy companies and into the coffers of the ESG companies. This is a huge monopoly scheme. Can you describe what the ESG score actually is? Like yeah, for the layperson? It stands for environmental, social, and governance. So there's three criteria, three metrics on which they... Uh, evaluate a company how well how how environmentally sustainable are they um do they have uh how much energy do they use do, how much oil are they dependent upon on and on and so forth then uh, do they have a net zero plan for the future uh they they need to have a net zero plan where they're completely non-carbon producing in anything they do and this goes also to their suppliers. Okay. Wow. So they, yes, they, they say, do their suppliers have, or how environmentally friendly are they? And do their suppliers have a net zero plant? So it starts metastasizing out to everything. That's the, the uh, environmental, that's the E. The S is social. Now, this is social justice, period. Mm -hmm. This is social justice criteria. That is, do they have the right composition of identities in their board, on their board, in their management, in their employee base? How many, how many black, lesbian, transgender people do they have? None? Oh, well, that's a low. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so, sorry, I'm laughing. This is just, it's this, so regressive. It's This is how far wokeness has gone. Yeah. And, and then governance, uh, Governance. Oh, oh. The other thing is on the S. On the S, do they have any right wing? Uh, do they have any right wing people on their staff or in their management? Oh, oh that's going to be negative. Wow. Uh, do they have non woke people? And then there's the governance, and that is like, how do they govern the corporation? Are they fair? Are they equitable? Blah blah blah. How many? You know, like how nice are they to whoever? And then also, like, how well do they cooperate with the government? Mm -hmm. uh, now, the ESG is now applied. It is applied to these corp to corporations through the stock markets, but it will be it will soon be applied to individuals, and this will be a major component of the social credit score. Mm. I, I want to talk about the social credit score in a second, but uh, before we do. There's another word that you use in this essay that I was wondering if you could help define for people. You talk about stakeholder capitalism. Yeah, stakeholder capitalism. This, as far as I know, and I've gone as far, tried to dig for the roots of this. Uh, and as far as I can tell, it goes back to Klaus Schwab's book in 1971, uh, 
something like management and mechanical engineering. It's innocuous sounding enough. But he introduced this idea of the stakeholder to a corporation. And the stakeholder is not, is, is, it, it, it may include, it includes shareholders, that is people that own stock in the company, but it also includes anybody that is putatively affected by the corporation. That is their customers, their employees, the, the, the community, society at large, and the planet. Uh, so it is uh, the stakeholders. So the companies are supposed to or, reorient themselves. And this is partly what's meant by reset. They are to reset their priorities, not in terms of who, uh, you know, their shareholder growth and profit to the shareholders and so on, but rather towards this new contingent of uh beneficiaries or uh, those affected by corporate behavior, the stakeholders. So there's a lot of slippage here because it really involves the theft of capital by, by this means is a way of controlling people's uh, companies, their business practices in every regard. Uh, so that they no longer really own their, you know, they, the owners of the companies really don't have the full disposal of their property as they wish. They can't run their companies like they want to or how they might want to. They now have to abide by the stakeholder roles. And this is executed through the ESG primarily right now. But they're so also the World Economic Forum is evaluating companies on the basis of their stakeholder uh, their stakeholder viability, their stakeholder worthiness. And there's a whole slew of companies. Now, speaking of the ESG, back to the ESG, mm -hmm. every, every major asset manager from BlackRock Inc. to State Street to UBS to um, Vanguard Group, all of those people, all these corporations, they're totally on board with the ESG and the stakeholder model. Uh, so it's, what's, what's wrong with this? Well, it sounds so nice. You know, corporations caring about people for once. Right. That's not what this is about. This is about controlling them mm -hmm. so that they no longer have property, really. This is a socialization process. It's a, a means of socializing their their assets. And uh, so, so, so yeah. why are they, so why would they, I think a person might ask, so why would they be on board? Why would BlackRock be on board with something that that is working to destroy their their, their own control of their company? Well, BlackRock is implementing this too. They have they control ten trillion dollars worth of assets, and so they're the ones investing in co companies. Like they take now, I sh people will say, "Well, BlackRock owns ten trillion dollars worth of assets." That's not true. They manage these assets. They don't own these companies they manage the investment in companies so for example they hold uh many many pension plans for many states in the united states they control the pension plans why do companies abide well for one it's being dictated to by these investment managers these asset managers like blackrock and banks similarly uh are also tied into and are subscribers to the stakeholder and ESG model. And Bank of America uh, and a slew of other banks are on board. Uh, and, and all the way, it's going to go all the way to the Fed. The Fed is going to be on board. Uh, and they'll, they'll also determine who, what banks they loan money to on the basis of the ESG scores not only of the banks but of their bank of their customers and their the company the companies they loan money to so banks are going are being evaluated on the basis of how well to the companies they loan money to abide by these stakeholder ESG metrics and this is of course going to cause banks not to invest in non ESG worthy companies it's going to cause complete control over these companies on the basis of these criteria. And as such, 
It undermines their actual autonomy, of course, but also their actual holdings. In other words, they're not really the owners because what is an owner? Somebody that owns something can dispose of it or use it however they wish. That's what ownership means. So this is really a serious breach of property rights, huge breach of property rights. Um, what, and why do other companies abide by it? Well, why do they push it? Well, as it goes back to this monopoly idea, they can use the ESG and the woke criteria, ESG, woke, stakeholder. It's all, it's all synonymous, really, uh, as a means to get rid of competitors. Mm. You're not, you know, they're not woke, so they can't be invested in. They're not woke. They can't get the assets. Uh, they're, they're not viable for loans. So they're, they're getting onto it and becoming the leaders in this the ones that are becoming the leaders because they see that this is going to be a way to get capital and it's going to be a way to drive out competitors from getting capital. Uh, it's a, a serious uh, shibboleth. You know, you speak this language or you get, you, you, you're not part of the tribe mm-hmm. and it's a serious demarcation device to get rid of the um, non-woke. Wow. You mentioned uh, destruction of property rights. Yeah. So that's something I've, I think I've seen playing out in the past couple of years with first the, uh, the CDC saying that landlords couldn't evict people right. because of COVID. So even if they weren't paying rent, you know, you, you couldn't do an eviction, which of course forced a lot of small landlords, uh, people that I know who make their living from owning a couple of properties, renting them out. Uh, to sell those properties to places like BlackRock. Actually, Black um, Blackstone. Blackstone. Yeah. I get those two confused. They're connected, though. They're connected. I can tell you how. But Blackstone yeah, goes then and they swoop up all these properties that have been law, you know, basically put on the market by these people that couldn't afford to have no rent come in. I used to own properties here in Pittsburgh and I sold them, but luck, I probably would have got screwed anyway. Uh, because it was, uh, because of this, you know, because mm-hmm. they got all these, uh, loan, uh, they got all these, uh, rent, uh, what do they call it? exemptions? You know, you didn't mm-hmm. have to pay rent. So it would, it crushed a lot of companies and small, small, um, real estate holders who then sold their properties to people like Blackstone. Now Blackstone, Blackstone. anything black is black before the in the name of a company is a sign that it's a bad evil company (laughs) wait what about black and decker Decker, yeah no i don't know about that okay but like uh blackstone black rock and then um black water they're also evil but um blackstone actually was the first funder of black rock so they were the first investor in black rock so they're connected intimately they're not the same company. Blackstone is a all-purpose corporation that just does whatever uh, they can get their hands into. Mm-hmm. Uh, Blackstone is an asset manager. Uh, Blackstone was funded originally by BlackRock, so they're all connect- they're very connected at the hip. So, uh, you know, first I saw the CDC thing about eviction, and that's squeezing out small-time property mm-hmm. owners, the middle class. The other thing I wondered if you thought this was part of it was I noticed in the infrastructure bill, they were trying to push under the Biden admin with a, what's his name? Pete, Pete Buttigieg. Mm -hmm. They were trying to push the uh, instituting a new tax per mile on (laughs) private, private vehicles. So, so if you own a car, the government wanted to take a dollar for every mile that you drove in your private vehicle. And, and, you know, before I talk about that, let's talk about how COVID crushed the small businesses. I mean, millions and millions of small businesses were crushed by the COVID response by the states, by by states and by local and regional government. Uh, so, uh, and then of course the you know the uh, Amazons, uh, the Facebooks, the WalMarts, the uh, on and on, all these grew enormously during this time. I mean, their, their revenues grew. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this was one way of crushing the middle class, this, this tax on, on 
vehicles is another. Uh, there's there seems to be, and I think it's it's consistent with the Great Reset con, um, objectives, is to get rid of the middle class, to get rid of these gas guzzling, meat eating consumers, uh, not to get rid of them as people necessarily, not to kill them but to destroy their standard of living and destroy their rights um, because these people are dangerous to the planet, you see. Hmm. Um, they want to get rid of our consumption, our meat-eating, meat costs all this energy. So they're going to do this vis-a-vis like things like what Buttigieg, Buttigieg or whatever the hell his name is. I call him butt. Just leave it. <laughs> uh, I will call him butt. <laughs> I won't say any more. <laughs> I've been on maternity leave. Anyway, um, they, <laughs> they, um, uh, the car, personal carbon allowance is going to be part of this. You, you know, everybody's going to have a personal carbon allowance. How much? So spending will be uh, calculated in terms of energy consumption, in particular, carbon-based energy consumption. So oh, you've had you've had one piece of meat this week. That's it for you for the week or the month because you've consumed too much carbon. Uh, your personal you have reached the limit of your personal carbon allowance. And this is on the this stuff is out there. This is happening. Can you talk about how I've tried to explain this before, just in personal conversations with people I know. Um can can you and I, I haven't always succeeded at describing it well. Can you talk about the vax mandates and how those could potentially lead to something like this social credit score, this ESG score, this personal carbon score? Well, I think that the um, the the, per, the the social credit score will, will end up being a a, con, a configuration that includes several factors. Uh, it'll be a health uh, assessment, and that will include a vaccine component. It will be a personal carbon allowance component. It will be a social component, and that is the social justice element. Mm. Uh, and it will likely have a governance component, like that is how, what is your status with reference to the state? Do you uh, pay your taxes? On and on and on. So. Uh, yeah, it, and that then will be used to determine your financial uh, and social viability in general. Can you do this? Can you do that? Are you worthy for a loan? Can you buy a house? Because will you, will you, no longer just your credit score, but your social, economic, and political credit score will be really what determines the, the viability for anything in terms of the economy and in jobs, employment as well. So this is a way of squeezing people in. Do you want to talk about how far wokeness goes? This is how far it goes. It's a complete control mechanism. It's terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. It's totalitarian all the way through. Yeah. I, I saw this in the beginning. I saw this with the social justice monsters that came after me. I said, these people are totalitarian. And yeah. then the university backed them up. And I said, these people are totalitarian. <laughs> then I saw it was going on a big tick on big tech. These people are totalitarian. And now I see it's everywhere. The whole yeah. <laughs> it's like we're living in a zombie movie. And yeah. you see that first, you see that first uh, zombie and you're like, yeah, that's right. So, what's wrong with that person? And then, and then you see, and, and then it's, oh, I live in a zombie world now. <laughs> exactly. And then you're like, and then there's all these people that are going along with it quietly, like, you know, total <laughs> automatons, you know, yes. and this seems to be the product they're looking for. The so, automaton. so how do you, um, well, actually, before I ask that, let me, let me back up a little, since you, since you mentioned when you first started noticing this, um, at the university, Mm-hmm. You said you were a Marxist professor. Are you still a Marxist? Well, I mean, when I say a Marxist professor, I was a Marxist and a professor. Okay. So I wasn't like a Marxist professor in the sense that I was teaching Marxism in the classroom. I did not. Although I did, but I taught, I never taught, and I never believed in, I argued with some uh, fellow Marxist professors 
that you shouldn't be using the classroom as a platform for propaganda and indoctrination. <laughs> I said this even as a Marxist. You know? Oh, you were an anomaly back then. I was an anomaly from the start. I always had <laughs> these kind of like uh, independent streaks about me. And, you know, I, I barely fit in anywhere in the Marxist uh, uh, world. Uh, I found the most sort of like outsider niche that you could imagine within Marxism, but no, I'm no longer a Marxist at, at all. In fact, I'm the, I'm a fierce critic of Marxism, socialism, uh, every type, social democracy. Uh, uh, what, what was that change like for you? Um, liberating was... beyond words. What do you mean? Li liberating. Well, I no longer had to worry whether my thoughts aligned with the party platform. Like, oh, don't think that. No, 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 don't think, don't think that. Oh, no, 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 no. You know, you know. I yeah. started saying, well, wait a minute. Maybe my own thoughts are, maybe they're fine. Maybe, maybe I don't need to disavow my own thinking. Maybe I can actually entertain my own thoughts and see where they go. And that, that was extremely liberating. When I, I rejected the whole left at once, uh, I said I made a decision and I tweeted about this and it probably was my biggest tweet ever. It had like 40, uh, 50, 250,000 views and likes or something like that. But uh, which I don't have much credence in Twitter. But anyway, I mean, I think I'm severely squelched there but that's another point yeah we're all we all going to have warnings on us soon i know several people have warning labels on them now yeah this is a dangerous person interestingly enough that's the same exact language they used in the soviet union they called them dangerous persons and that's what they call them facebook calls them uh twitter's increasingly calling them dangerous persons this is this nomenclature they could have adopted straight out of the soviet handbook i think they did yeah. Um, so where were we? I, so I, you you said you talked about it when you finally you left you left leftism all to all at once. Yeah, and then um, so I left it first for political reasons, like it's totalitarian. Then I started investigating the economics much more deeply, and I had written about political economy as a Marxist, and I thought it was, you know, true. But I started studying critiques through um first i read a lot of system you know a lot of history about uh, the soviet union and china and, and and the terrible political crimes that that were committed uh and enormous horrendous uh, acts that they took on a systematic basis way worse than anything other i think solzhenitsyn's right that um, bolshevism is the most destructive murderous ideology that has ever uh, that has ever existed um, but then i started looking at the economics and uh realizing you know studied mises that's ludwig von mises and uh, his books on uh socialism uh, and his books on capitalism and why one is better than the other why why in fact is capitalism not only economically superior but ethically superior in fact it's ethically uncontested if you really look at the deep uh, implications of socialism, you realize that it's utterly unethical. They're, everything about it is criminal. And from the outset, the very project is a criminal project. So, and then I realized that it can't work. Like socialism never has existed and never will because it doesn't work. It's not that it it's set up and then fails. It doesn't ever get set up because it can't be. Uh, there's economic reasons why it can never be set up mm. as such. It always has to have elements of free market enterprise in it, like China adopted, for example, in the 70s when they realized that this this socialism is, you know, not working. So uh, Dao, Zing, uh, Dao Zingping uh, called uh, the plan to re to institute, re to introduce capitalism or for-profit for uh, companies into China. He called it socialism with Chinese characteristics. <laughs> such a, and you know, leftists fall for this. They fall for this. <laughs> the socialists, they're like, yeah, it's just socialism with Chinese characteristics. I <laughs> socialism supplemented by and kept alive by capitalism. 
Uh, <laughs> so uh, I call it now I call what they're trying to establish in terms of the Great Reset and all that capitalism with Chinese characteristics. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Do you know, uh, oh, just as an aside, I lived in Tanzania for half a year when I was in college. It was a long time ago now. And they, are you familiar with the term Ujamaa? Mm -mm. So in Swahili, um, I think it means, I'm trying to remember, I think it means family, but it's a, it's, it, they use it to mean social African socialism. Uh -huh. It's socialism with African characters. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. 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 Well, the idea there with socialism with Chinese characteristics, they said was, oh, you know, Marx said that you have to have full-fledged capitalism before socialism can develop out of it, you know. So we didn't start that way. We started by with peasantry, with pet with a you know peasant class in a feudalistic system. We need to go through capitalism first. Oh, it may last a hundred years, but by that time, all these people that said it would turn into socialism are dead, naturally. And uh, but it never turns into. In fact, they say you know they always talk about how socialism will has to bail out capitalism, but it's absolutely everything they say is the absolute reverse. Opposite. Of the truth. Everything. It's not capitalism. It's not that socialism bails out capitalism. It's that capitalism has to bail out socialism every single time. Yes. Uh, when you say everything they say is is the reverse. Yeah. This is something I wasn't really aware of until the past few years. And the more I was waking up from and leaving social justice and and just becoming more aware of what was happening in the world and and seeing these patterns and and I don't know, do you think it's always been like this or are we just living in a unique time or has it been is it has it been like this in certain periods of history um, and we happen to be in one of those now where up is down, down is up, good is evil, evil is good, everything's inverted. It's an inversion. Um, actually, I just wrote the forward for a book that I would also recommend besides mine. <laughs> oh, political panorology. Political panorology, yeah. And he's he calls this uh this thing reversive blockades, is what he refers to this statement that is the exact opposite of the truth being made, and it's 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 a characteristic of totalitarian regimes. Uh, it's a way for them to block your access to the truth by giving you the most preposterous impediment to getting to the truth, the opposite of the truth. So he calls it a, a reverse of blockade. It reverses the truth and it blocks you from access to the truth because the thought is so antithetical to the truth, it serves as an impediment. And people buy this because there's a tendency in human beings based probably on our evolutionary history, that we need, we need to believe people. Mm -hmm. We need to believe what people say because, you know, hey, there's a bear over there, right? Okay, you know, you're not going to go, no, let's see. Let's see if he's correct. <laughs> let's go over and test it. No, you just run. Yeah. Um, this is just, you know, this is probably very much embedded in our genes. So uh, this is why people tend to believe reverse of blockades because it's easier. And it's so hard to get to the truth because they actually say they stop you in your act in, in your access to the truth. Because then when you make the accurate accusation, the truthful ac accusation, they've already heard it the other direction. And so mm -hmm. then it becomes that two Spider-Man meeting right. two people pointing at each other. And then I, people go, it must be somewhere in the middle. Yeah, I've heard. Yeah, it's got to be. There's two sides to every story. no. No, there is right and wrong. There's good and There's evil. Two There's... Sides. There's the lie and the truth. <laughs> yes. Yes, correct. there are two sides, the lie and the truth. And the lie is perpetrated by totalitarian regimes. Um, because in this book puts, as this book puts it, it's really run by psychopaths. Uh, now, you know, this is not necessarily that everybody involved is a psychopath, but the, what they do is they induce their way of thinking onto the onto broader and broader swaths of the population who then take up their ideas and, and actually live in them. And this becomes their consciousness, you know. Michael, I was I was knew this was going to be a great conversation. I knew it was going to be so excited to talk to you. This this is something also I I don't know um 
if everyone, it seems a lot of people I know are starting to think about all this stuff now, but, but I've certainly noticed that, um, for example, Justin Trudeau, he comes out, he says, these truckers are authoritarians. Yeah, they're the authorities. <laughs> and and then so it, it's it's the absolute opposite. The government. Right. It's is, him that's is, the authoritarian. Yes, he's and the authoritarian. They are trying to be dem- They're trying to express their democratic rights. Right, and that is exactly what individuals who are psychopaths do. They yeah. engage in DARVO, deny and reverse victim order. They come out. I've had interaction with a psychopath. They come out. They say. Every everything they're doing to you, they will they will accuse you of. Yes. And then it and then it becomes the Spider-Man meme of two Spider-Mans. And it's how do you fight that? And exactly. and that's what that's what's happening on a understanding on an individual level has helped me to better understand it, I guess, on the large scale, that that is sure actually what's happening and it is psychopathic. Yes, it, sure it helps you on that scale because after all, the large scale is just individuals acting in we should have a methodological uh, individualism that is really uh, not, not to think like leftists, everything is systemic. No, it's, it's people doing things, you know, Mm -hmm. and these people are inducing other people to think like them because they have the power to do so because they have the access to the the political levers and they have access to all the media and they control, you know, their, their, their word, is what's put out there as viable and, and valid. And so they control the consciousness of people vis-a-vis this. And yeah, it's a reverse of blockades. Um, and um, it's, uh, it's very difficult. To, it takes almost all of your energy to resist. So I find that it takes, uh, it's almost a full-time job to be a dissident, you know. Mm-hmm. To be awake currently yeah. and, and, not and but not woke. Yeah. Well, to be woke is also, it's past tense. It's done. You're not awake. <laughs> it's yeah. like, I already woke up. I know everything like, yeah. no. Woke, yeah. Woke me when it's over. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah. So can you uh, talk a little bit about the, I mean, we've been talking about it already, but but for anyone who's not familiar with the the Great Reset with um, mm. the World Islamic Forum with Klaus Schwab and this book that he wrote at the beginning mm. of COVID, yeah. can you talk a little about that book and and what that's yeah, about? Yeah, I mean, he wrote a book called uh, COVID nineteen: The Great Reset. So tell me, this is a conspiracy theory? Um, you know, he said basically that you know COVID is teaching us that we have to reset everything that our economic system is not viable, that it doesn't work and that we have to have more state intervention and more control. We have to have these stakeholder capitalism. We have to have all this. And the uh, Great Reset is just like a packaging of all these things. It is, it's, there's all these elements and it's just a way of wrapping it all up and putting a bow on it and giving it to us as a gift. Thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> and so... It's the great reset is is just the the marketing campaign for this entire project. Uh, I saw some of their marketing, some of their advertisements. One was the smiling guy says, "In the year twenty thirty, you will own nothing and you will be happy." Right. I also saw a piece that they published in Forbes. It was oh, yes. the the it was written by it didn't have a I don't I don't think it had an actual person as the author. It just said by the World WEF, Economic Forum. Yeah, right. Yeah. And it was a piece talking about uh this is the year 2030 and here's what it's like. And I think they were trying to write it as this sort of utopia, but it read like a dystopia to me because it's this person's writing about how nobody owns anything that's great. I don't even own my apartment. I just sleep here at night. And during the day, it's used for conference meetings. <laughs> like, yeah, that's you know. exactly right. And Forbes magazine, they kept that essay up, but it's been scrubbed from the WEF website. Nevertheless, um, it's it was it's still maintained. And isn't that interesting? Forbes magazine, who you would have thought like a, you know, an instrument for capitalism, you know, it's unbelievable that these, all these institutions, all these media have all been taken over by this. Yeah. It's uh, one of the funniest parts of that essay. I don't know if you remember was where it was like, um, 
when I want to cook dinner, I, I just call someone on my phone and they bring me a pot and pan and a knife. And then I'm, and whatever vegetables I have, you don't even own a pot and a pan. Like how terrible is that? Yeah. You, you won't have a pot to, a pot to piss in. No. Uh, no. Yeah. Even your underwear might be rented, you know? Yes. So, uh, yeah. I mean, they wanted this. Yeah. I mean, they, they, they tout this idea of notice that no, you know, you're going to rent everything that you have. Nothing will be owned. But of course, what's this keep in place? It keeps this co corporate oligarchy in place who are monopolizing everything because you, all the competitors own nothing. So there's no competition. You know, there's no competition for anything. Uh, this is just administered socialism by corporate state hybrids, really. Yeah. And it's sold to us as this, this um, uh, technological freedom know, and uh, freedom at your fingertips, call, right. order anything you want. And it's great because you don't have to own it. it, it this utopia is such a lie. And there's, it's, they're selling all the um, transhumanist elements as like enhancements. You know, you'll be able to go on the web with your brain, just <laughs> connected straight to the internet and you'll be able to pull down all this information. But, what they don't mention, and I, this is what the premise of Thought Criminal is, is and, and it came from research on, on this very technology. These, these, this is real, okay? These nanobots, not only will you'll be able to get information from the web, but you'll be transmitting your thoughts to it, okay? <laughs> so <laughs> this is a two-way, you know, the internet is a two-way situation. You, you are pulling down things from the server, but you're also setting up information. It's interactive, right? Same thing is going to go on here. If this kind of technology, which is on the table, which is being developed and which is being touted by Klaus Schwab and others, brain cloud interfaces, this will be a means of not only reading your thoughts, but supplementing them and perhaps supplanting them. I saw something recently Um Oh, well, it hasn't been recently because it's hard for me to remember the details. But it was something about how much information we are transmitting just in our browsing histories, the things mm -hmm. we're looking at, the time of day we're on the phone, and and how uh, much tighter they've made the algorithm so that they can accurate, very, very close to accurately predict a lot about us, and including yeah. um, the, the article I read was about a woman getting... Uh, advertisements for... Like, somehow her phone knew that she was pregnant. Mm -hmm. and it's like yeah. like being able to I tell these they things can read about. your thoughts you know it seems like yeah. they're reading your actual mind so i've had ads pop up that are something i just thought about never even told anybody i thought about it mm -hmm. uh, but i think there's these algorithms that are predictive algorithms uh th this is what they uh, tout is they'll have predictive algorithms that will predict your behavior furthermore they may have algorithms that preclude certain behaviors that stop you from having these behaviors like interrupt thoughts. Like, what do you mean? Well, if you have algorithms that are predicting behavior and they're sending this to databases that know what you're going to do next, they can also send algorithms to you that say, don't do it. Mm. <laughs> okay. Which means like, you know, in this uh, future, you mean in the future. In the future. Now, the future is not far away. Uh, we're living in the future in a sense. Uh, I mean, I, I was just looking at this article that I uh, based uh, that I based Thought Criminal on. And uh, it's called, uh, it's in this periodical called uh, Frontiers in Neuroscience. And they're, they're talking about this. And let me just read a, a very short passage. Real short. Yeah. Do I have time? Yeah, we do. Uh uh, all right, there. It says here that future nano, neural nano robotics technologies are anticipated to facilitate accurate diagnosis of and eventual cures for conditions in the human brain. Blah blah blah. Of course, they're going to sell it as an as advantage. You know. Uh, uh, neuro nano robotics may also enable a brain cloud interface with controlled connectivity between neural activity and external data storage and processing via direct monitoring of the brain's neurons and synapses. Uh, 
the subject to navigating the human vasculature, actually going through your bloodstream, three species of nano, neuro nanobots, and I won't say whether, enter the brain and ingress into human individual brain cells and transmit the, at the axial initial segments of neurons, blah, blah, blah. And they would then wirelessly transmit bits up per second of synaptically processed and encoded human brain electrical information via auxiliary nanorobotic fiber optics with the capacity to handle X amount of bits, rapid transfer to a cloud-based supercomputer for real-time brain state monitoring and data extraction. <laughs> <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> extraction okay people can't read between the lines what this says it's unbelievable <laughs> it's it's gonna be like you said though they're gonna market it to us as something that's helpful right and useful this and... is something now it probably won't happen in my lifetime but it may but i think this stuff you need to teach your children about because this is not far this is going to be on offer not on offer it may be mandatory somehow uh in the future yeah it it we're living in one of this these dystopian novels it, yeah it, it oh yeah while i can't write understand. a novel that's terrifying enough to ever grasp all this i tried yeah. i i think i failed i think the novel works as a novel but i failed to do uh what i wanted to do which was to create a dystopia that's worse than the one we're in. And it's not really that easy to do. <laughs> no, it's not. It's like, look, look around. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so um, where do you see, would you say that you're, I know everybody talks about, are you black pill? Are you white pill? Are you red pill? What pill are you? Uh, do you describe yourself in, in those, those terms? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've often said on Twitter, I need a white pill. I'm deeply black pilled and red pilled. Uh, so, but I have a white pill handy. And um, that white pill is just a basic faith, frankly. Mm -hmm. It's faith. Uh, and I, I don't want to have to go too far. I could. But That's I think, okay. That's my yeah, white pill. Yeah. Um, and that is, uh, I believe in God and the, um, also believe in the inviability of the individual and uh, the, you know, complete uniqueness of each person. And that uniqueness uh, is, the, is the safeguard against total control mm -hmm. by others. And that's been vouchsafed, vouchsafed to us intentionally by our creator uh, as our birthright and our very heritage as well. It is what we are and that will be redeemed. That's what I believe. I agree with you. That's I think that's my white pill. I'm kind yeah. of like I had to get black pilled before I got white pilled. Of course. Yeah. I do too. <laughs> yeah. First, um, I had an onslaught of social justice warriors. Then I had to have a girlfriend leave me because she turned woke and radical feminist. Then I had to have my son get stage four cancer all at the same time. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot. And and personal like a it. I know so many people, myself included, who uh, these personal transformations and trials and black pills are happening at the same time as the bit, the massive black pill that's going on in society. Yeah, they're happening at the same time. People are being uh, made aware of what's happening and then it's changing them in, 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 you know, internally. And then they're finding themselves needing something. They need a resource. They need a way out. They have to find a, an escape hatch from this. And, and, and this is where I think, um, you know, major spiritual breakthroughs come from. Yeah. I know it's cliche, but the way I've described it is I had to get to the darkest place to see the light. Yeah. And these, all these things that used to sound, these aphorisms that I used to think of as trite or, I, I'm starting to understand them now. <laughs> like, yeah. oh, well, that's it, it, it's true. <laughs> you yeah. do have to get to a dark place to see the light yeah. sometimes. Yeah. There was a guy I was talking to um, who I met through the podcast last summer. And he said to me, he said, I'm no longer an atheist. I'm, I'm agnostic. I'm open. I don't know. 
But the reason I'm open is because I can see evil now. Mm -hmm. And if I can see evil, I'm now open to the possibility that there's good. Yes. This is the only, I, I talked to a, an atheist friend of mine about this. And I said, do you, do you see the evil out there? And he goes, oh, yeah. I said, well, well how do you define it? Against what? Mm -hmm. Well, against good. And I said, well, how do you define that? Like, where's that come from? Like, why is it good? And mm -hmm. what warrants its goodness as such? You know? And he was stumped. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This, yeah, I, I, I was having this conversation with my, my husband yesterday. I think I've started thinking about how, I guess my thoughts are changing on, on the definition of good and where it comes from and morals and ethics and all of these principles that until very recently, I thought, well, you can hold all of these things and you don't have to believe in a creator or a deity or this, this mm -hmm. supreme goodness that, that, that that's where these things come from. But now I'm not so sure. Because now I almost think, I almost think these things need roots in something. The, you can't pluck them like from a tree. Well, I'm going to take this bit of this mm -hmm. faith and this bit. That where are the roots? Mm -hmm. So exactly. when when you're tested, you know what is it? Where does it come from? What's it based on? What's the source? And exactly. the source is, in my opinion, the source is God, a creator. Mm -hmm. And I, God, I, you know, I know some people. They talk about the universe. I used to be one of these people talked about the universe, the universe, however you want to define it, but um, something yeah. bigger than ourselves. And yeah. anyway, that's where I'm at. That's that's a rambly thought, but yeah, no, I'm in the. That's on the same thing I was saying. It has to be a warrant for this, you know. Yeah. That is, there has to be um, some grounding for it that is is other than itself. Otherwise, you know, what is sustaining it? Like yes. what is you know, what is its source? And how do we determine whether that is actually good or not? Like it has to come from a good source. It has to come from the good source. So. Yeah. You can't say good is good. Yeah, that's right. It's yeah. good for a reason. It's coming from the source of goodness. Yeah. 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 Um, well, Hey, thank you for, for having that tangent with me. That's something I'm, I haven't really articulated this yet. I'm still thinking about it, but um I appreciate you being here today. I don't want to take up too much of your time. I'm trying to keep these to an hour lately. Yeah, sure. I just want to make sure I'd love to talk to you again sometime, Michael. And um, I want to make sure people know where to find you and where to find your books. Yeah, everything is on my website. I don't have a sub stack. I keep independent as possible. It's michaelrechtenwald.com. There's my books, essays, uh, interviews like this one will be up there. Uh, all of my media appearances and every piece of news about me i keep i have i keep track of what everything is being said because i want to know what the hell they're saying for one and then once i find it i say i might as well put it up have it put up on the site so i have a catalog of everything uh and uh so everything michael rectenwald's there including my history as a marxist all the writing that i some of the writing i did there even my academic work is up there too oh that's got to be interesting to read through all of that too um, well, you guys check that out below. We have the link in the description of the video and a uh, final question. What is something that is giving you joy lately? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I would say probably, uh, writing actually does. It's, it's one of the major sources for me, uh, mm -hmm. because, uh, then I writing is a way of, uh, seeing that I can, uh, that I can surmount difficulties and, uh, to, to be able to articulate what's going on and then surmounting it through solutions in writing actually gives me the ability to, I think, do so in life. Yeah. And uh, that's one source. And the other one is I, we've already touched on. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Thank you so much, Michael. Uh, again, if you guys are here for the first time, this is a new channel. So please hit subscribe, share the video if you like it, and we will see you guys in a future episode. Thank you, sir. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye.